4FM. And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East at Sierra, West at Sierra, Southwest at Sierra, and North Northeast at Sierra. Wind southwest, rain at times, good. 40s, 50s, 60s, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll, westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, 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 now. Hello, welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community bubbling away in East London, but as always resonating way beyond. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Katie Callan and I'm here with Jessie Lawson. Hello. Today we'll be showing sounds from the Four Corners Gallery in Roman Road Tower Hamlets and a few clips from our last East Castaway event. We'll be talking to Una Gay from East London on Foot and hearing some live music from Henry Nielsen. But first we're joined in the studio by Karantima and Yimadu from Arts Emergency. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Very good, thank you. Uh, can you explain to someone who might not know what Arts Emergency is? Yes. Um, so um, what we like to say is that it's a network of privilege. Um, so fundamentally what we are is a mentoring project for young people who are passionate about the creative industries, um, but for some reason um, are less privileged and so are less likely to make it into the creative and cultural industry. So what we do is we help them with networking, we help them with confidence, and we help like make them contacts in, in the industries, um, and they get a mentor for a year. And that mentor works just with them, so it's one on one. And they basically give them, they're like their personal cheerleader for a whole year. So they give them like um, support, advice, guidance, whatever it is they're interested in. And we work with students who are like a real, real range of interests. So, like fashion, marketing, film, TV, journalism, architecture, history, linguistics. It's really, really broad. And I think that's what is quite special about Arts Emergency because it's arts and, and humanities like all together. Mm-hmm. And so how do um, you pair up people with mentors? How does that work? It's basically like matchmaking pretty much. <laughs> so we meet all our young people. So we work with schools. Um, we go into schools, meet our young people there. We interview them all. It's like quite like um, low-key chilled interview but we have a chat with them basically for like 15 minutes. Um, and the reason why we do that is because you might get a young person who on the application form says, oh yeah, I really love writing my spare time and I've written half of a novel already um, but I think I'm going to do law mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, oh, okay, classic. yeah classic choice so we meet them because it's quite it's like a better way of finding out what it is actually passionate about um, then we meet all the mentors as well in the same way so we meet them all have a chat with them then we literally just like stalk people on <laughs> Google look at their profiles and then we think like we see whether a good match can be made that's how we do it yeah how um, have you done it I haven't done it. I have been mentored before and I have mentored a young person before and had like quite like a sad mentoring <laughs> like, experience where my mentor basically broke up with me and like didn't talk with me no. again. So oh. I know. So I think it's really nice like um the way it works at us emergency is that um we say, you know, mentoring's for a year, um, but we do support young people from when they're sixteen until when they're twenty four. So they get the support 
for like years you know when you're thinking about UCAS and then when you like you left college and you're like I don't know what I'm doing you go to uni you leave uni like I don't know what I'm doing like you still have that support then afterwards that's what's really nice about it and a lot of our mental pairs like stay in touch um, and some mentors like come back and mentor again like three times it's, it's like a nice family that's really mm. nice how do you could you explain a little bit more by what you mean of like a network of privilege yeah like where do those inequalities start really? So, um, as you probably kind of know, uh, if you have contacts in the creative or cultural industries already, it's much easier for you to find a job. Um, and there's a, a report called Panic Report that um, we it sort of did in partnership with Create London and the University of Edinburgh and Sheffield. Um, and they found that people's like social networks in the creative and cultural industries especially were really, really important. So um, people who are you know CEOs of marketing advertising companies their social networks be really small so they'll know other people lots of other people who work in creative and cultural industries a bit like them so what we found is that people who don't have those networks already are much less likely to find their way or get a foot in the door into those um, industries so it's about like helping a 16 year old (laughs) from like Hackney from a Hackney college or um, we work all around London so um, like Greenwich and Hillingdon like really really broad but it's helping these young people who otherwise won't have that kind of network or don't have like a mum who works as like in the BBC or like a next door neighbour who works in the Guardian like they don't have those networks ready so it's giving them a mentor who then can be like oh I know someone who works at the Guardian I'll like set you up with them you can have a chat with them for 10 minutes and find out about what they do it's like as simple as that really yeah yeah, I guess it's all about access and also like opening it up and being like, actually, this is yeah, an option if yeah, you want. Yeah, exactly. Because I think um, for some people, like if you can like remember when you were like 16 and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I want to work in a film, maybe, but I have no idea what kind of jobs are available. Like it's either you want to be an actor or you want to be like a film director. But, you know, like when a film e- ends and all the credits roll, there's like thousands and thousands of names and like hundreds and hundreds of jobs available like you wouldn't know what those jobs are until like someone tells you so that's what the really like important part of connecting people at the at that stage when they're just about to choose oh what do I want to study at uni or do I want to go to uni at all those kind of things are really important then mm-hmm. yeah and do you say networking as well you do events or do you just like introduce people to mm-hmm. options yeah so it's a bit of, like a mixture of both so um the, the the special thing I think is that these young people have their mentor who's like just for them and these mentors have like huge contacts of their own um but we also have about like six thousand people who have signed up to our network as supporters um and that's really easy to do you just like go onto our website and can say join um and so if we have a young person who say wants to know more about journalism they can just ask us and then we'll ask our network and then out of those six thousand people you know you'll get um, like 20, 30 people would say, oh yeah, I can help or I've got a friend who can help and then that's the way that we match like young people with with other people who work in different kinds of industries. So it's, yeah, it's not just uh, like a one-on-one thing that they get throughout the year, they also get this extra like contact but it's, it's pretty cool. What advice do you give to people in terms of things like networking and confidence? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I say that because I hate no, I hate networking, and I think like I think that's the thing. I think when you're a young person, sometimes I think you feel like you need to have all that confidence already, and actually you don't realize that a lot of people are just like making it up. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so if it, like actually I just have a conversation with someone um, like two weeks ago, um, who's in their first year at university now. Um, 
and I was like, oh, have you gone out to some of like, the student like union events and things like that? She was like, no, I really don't want to because she just feels a bit weird about it. And I was like, okay, when, when I have to go to an event, I really don't want to go. I'm like, I'm going to go for half an hour. I'm going to speak to one person I don't know. When I'm done that, I'm going to leave because then it's like, you know, you'd, you'd made an effort. So I think a lot of the time it's making, I don't know, I think it's just like telling them that actually a lot of adults don't know what they're doing, don't feel that confident about things. But the more you try the easier it will become. Make it till you make it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what is your job, your actual specific role in it? Uh, so I'm the like London officer, so I basically look after um, our young people in London and um, try and support them throughout um, the years that they're with us and support their mentors as well. Yeah. Do you have one mentor or mentee that has like stuck in your memory? Ooh, good question. Um, there are so many. Um... I guess if I had to choose one, we're not allowed to have favourites either because they're, <laughs> they're all wonderful. Um, there is one mentee in particular who started with us, so two years ago. And um, when we met her, so I think you kind of, when you meet young people, there's like quite like a range, obviously, there's like a range of personalities and you get some that are quite, quite confident and sure about what they want to do. And there's some that have no idea, which is absolutely fine. So when we met this young person, they were like, kind of felt kind of confident like they were really eloquent like um really intelligent but didn't have much support from her school from her family didn't have much support didn't really know like what she could do with the skills that she thought she had but she wasn't really sure about it um so we matched her with someone they went to like an art gallery for the first time so the first time she'd been to a gallery the first time she went to a museum um i would say like her growth over the year was like immense um and just got like accepted into Oxbridge and is now in wow. Oxford in her first year and is like having a great time and I think like I mean she wasn't at her college um they told her not to bother applying and it was her mentor that like encouraged her and like gave her like the confidence to say actually you can do it so I think that that kind of like personal growth is amazing and I think like she would have done well anyway because she was a very intelligent person, but I think just having like a push or just having someone to support you yeah, really yeah. made that difference. And it's really nice that you you keep in touch with these young people from when they're sixteen, and um, you know, like it's pretty much like unrecognizable the change that happens when like you're sixteen to eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then also like after that, it's it's really special, yeah. And so, um, if people want to be mentored, do they have to? be in a school that you're coming to yeah at the moment they have to be in a school that we go to yeah so we sort of um we work in schools that have a certain level of people pupil premium and then um if you're eligible in some ways it might be that you come from a low income household uh you're a person of color um you have a disability um that kind of thing there's a quite a few ranges then you can apply to the program um and at the moment we work mostly with year 12s so we start working with year 12s but we are looking at ways of um, widening it out a bit so that we're working with kind of older people um, older young people who might not be in colleges and schools that are working with already um, that's something we're like trialling this year so hopefully we'll be able to help more young people as we grow mm-hmm. and in terms of people signing up to be mentors is it any sort of humanities or arts backgrounds you're looking for? Yeah, yeah <laughs> any, every yeah. single one yeah all of them yeah there are a few that we don't um have as many mentors in as we would like 
Um, so the fashion industry, we don't have as many mentors in there. Uh, games design, which is like quite a new, it's quite a new like field for us. Like I'd say last year we had maybe two students interested in it, and this year we have like eleven. Okay. So like it, it does, it does change. But I mean, the the great thing about it is that like year on year, you'll have no idea what kind of students are going to apply and what inter- what their interests are. So working with them um, at the moment, 160 young people. So we have work in London, but we have a um, like cohort in Manchester and one in Kent as well. So 160, um, which means we've got about like 500 young people that we've worked with or are working with. Um, and the interests really range from year on year, but it's pretty broad across the arts humanities, yeah. And if people want to be mentors, they just go to the website and it's that yeah. simple. Yeah, it's that simple. Go to the website, sign up. We um, we train mentors every September, um, October time, and that's how the process starts. Yeah. But you can sign up at any time. <laughs> yeah. So sign up. Yeah, so sign up, yeah. Um, and where can we find you as well? Um, so you can find, well, you can find Arts Emergency on Twitter, at Arts Emergency. Um, and I just have to say, the amazing, the also amazing thing about it is that it, we're completely funded just by public donation. So we're, we're not funded by any corporates. We're funded purely by people donating like £5 a month or like £10 a month. Um, so if you do want to help us, that's also like an amazing way. So if you go onto our Twitter, um, it's our um, CEO, Neil, who basically just like frantically tweets every day. <laughs> um, but that's a really good way of keeping in touch with what we're up to. And if you want to donate, please do. Sweet. Thank you so yeah. much for coming no, in. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got the first of three packages put together by Celia Robbins and Hilary Geit about East End musicians. Sorry, about East End museums and galleries. Hilary visited the Four Corners Gallery in Roman Road, Tower Hamlets, where there's an exhibition of photos of the work of the East End suffragettes. Hilary went on the 14th of December when the Four Corners Gallery was celebrating 100 years of the first women casting a vote in a general election. of a hundred years exactly since some women first voted in Britain for the first time. That was Carla Mitchell, Development Director at Four Corners, reminding us that only some women got the vote a hundred years ago and we had to wait another ten years before all women over the age of 21 were allowed to vote just like men. Getting the vote was a long process for women and the current exhibition at the Four Corners Gallery on Roman Road showcases the work of the East London suffragettes. They were fighting not just for the vote but for other improvements in women's lives and social conditions. The photographs in the exhibition were taken by Nora Smythe. Carla told me about how she found the photographs within the Sylvia Pankhurst archives in Amsterdam. I went in, in this spring to visit the archive in Amsterdam, which is um, actually where Sylvia, all Sylvia Pankhurst's papers are. Um, they're at the International Institute of Social History, which is a phenomenal archive of social history. Within her collection, there is this amazing collection of photographs by Nora Smythe, who 
lived and worked with Sylvia Pankhurst for 10 years, actually, from 1914 to 1924. They lived just up the road in Bow on Old Ford Road. She was from a very well-to-do background, and so it was certainly true that by about 1910, there were quite a lot of middle-class people who would have had cameras, but um, it was certainly also the case that it was still a very unusual thing to be taking photographs and particularly unusual for a woman. They've never been publicly exhibited, and they've never been exhibited in East London, so it felt like um, a very symbolic thing to bring them back to East London in 2018. At the exhibition, the 110 photos that Carla brought back are displayed on the walls and on screens running on a loop. The photos are supplemented with others from the time, including some video footage. The exhibition covers the full range of work of the ELFS, the East London Federation of Suffragettes. If you come to the exhibition, you come away with two things, a deeper understanding of the social conditions in the Easter End at that time, and a fascinating exposition of the different factions within the suffragette movement. The ELFS was established by Sylvia Pankhurst and other suffragettes, including Nora Smythe, to focus on campaigning for the vote for working-class women. At that time, Sylvia's mother, Emmeline, and older sister, Christabel, were campaigning for the vote just for middle-class women who owned property. The ELFS, in contrast, campaigned for working-class women's social and industrial rights alongside their demand for the vote. I talked to associate curator of the exhibition, Ruby Rees Sheridan, about her involvement with it. So I was yeah, involved in the creation of the exhibition, um, which has been amazing. Just It's been such a gift to be able to look at and hold these photographs and kind of share them with people. So, And which one's your favourite? I know which one it is. Shall we it's go and the, walk um, there? I mean, I love all of them, and they're all so intimate. And It's um, the one of Rose Pangeli leading a strike of a match factory, and she was 14 years old, dressed in white. Um, she's a 14-year-old girl who was working in Bax match factory and led a strike out of the factory to campaign against um, equal pay and there's a lot of men in that picture yeah (laughs) and they were supporting the women for their right for equal pay yeah I think I think they were Um, I think they called her mini Sylvia or little Sylvia or something as well which is quite nice So what's interesting about Nora Smythe is what we can tell from the photographs and the way they were used is that she seems to have been very specific in using photography as a means of promoting the movement and documenting it and in a way almost documenting it for posterity and a way of saying, you know, we were there, we did this, which I think is really interesting and it's completely unique. For the time, um, to be... Living in East London, working alongside Sylvia Pankers, but working mainly with a group of local working women involved in a lot of welfare actions for local women and families during the First World War and documenting that as an insider. So it's almost like it's a form of community arts documentation, which um, I think is, is you know, well ahead of its time. I talked to a group of young people who were at the exhibition. Georgia. Georgia and... George. And uh, Beth. And Eloise. 
It's quite an interesting um, insight into East London 100 years ago. Like we, all we all live in East London um, at the moment, and it's completely different to uh, the images that we're seeing today. And I do think I kind of realised the kind of the poverty, perhaps, and uh, how difficult times must have been 100 years ago. It's a completely different place. I completely agree. East London is not this anymore. It's so gentrified and completely different. It's hard to think that this was happening 100 years ago. It's, it's wild. George showed me his favourite photo. It's a picture of 10 or so children down a sort of East London side road peering out of the walls looking at the camera. Yeah, I think that's something that's so amazing about these images is how intimate they are because they look like kids that you'd see every day. Um, his little face is so... It kind of shuts, takes away that barrier of 100 years and you can kind of imagine seeing them anywhere. The other interesting thing is that a lot of her photographs, probably the bulk, were used in the Woman's Dreadnought newspaper, which was their own newspaper, which, which ran from 1914 to 1924. Also hugely innovative to be using photography in print at the time. This was a, you know, this was a hugely important moment socially and that there was huge upheaval by the end of the war. It wasn't just votes for women, that the whole society um, was so very different and in a way is the beginning of the society that we still have today. And so I think that's what's interesting about the East End suffragettes, that the kind of campaigns that they were involved with are still issues that are really alive for us today. The other thing about this project, which I should say is funded through Heritage Lottery Fund, is that we will have we will lodge a copy of every single one of these photographs at Tower Hamlet's archives. So there will be, for posterity, a collection of these photographs there for people to to study and to use. And they're going to be producing an education pack for students, school students as well, that will include some of them. So that was very important, an important part of the project. One of the speakers at the event celebrating 100 years since women first cast their vote in England was Frances Scott. She is the founder of the 50-50 Ask Her to Stand campaign, which is aiming to achieve gender balance in Parliament. She is campaigning to get more women to stand as MPs. Frances reminded us that we still have a way to go to achieve equality in our democracy. In the last 100 years, 5,000 people have been elected to Westminster. Okay, so in 100 years we've had 5,000 MPs, but fewer than 500 have been women. In the House of Commons right now, men outnumber women 2 to 1. In the House of Lords, it's 3 to 1. At the last general election, only 12 extra women were elected. At that rate, it will take 50 years to have gender balance. The most important message I'd like you to take home from this evening is there's one small action you can do for today to improve democracy. Think about, rack your brains about a woman you met who you think might be a good MP and ask her to stand. And if you might consider it yourself, be one of those really important, wonderful women, that one in a hundred thousand that we need at Westminster. So, if you know a woman who would make a good MP, including yourself, you can sign up free for further information at the campaign website, www.5050parliament.co.uk.
The music you've been hearing in the background to this piece was called When You're Smiling, played by the Valentino's trio, Sue Lynch, Leslie Booth and Ian Hill. The exhibition is part of the Women's Hall project. That's a partnership between Tower Hamlet's local history library and archives, the East End London Women's Museum and Alternative Arts. The exhibition is on until 9th of February and there are special events every two to three weeks. Details are available on the website www.fourcornersfilm.co.uk. You're listening to Eastcast on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at Eastcast Show and you can listen again to our interviews and music online on iTunes or Spotify if you type in Eastcast Show London and at eastcastshow.com. Now we're joined in the studio by Una Gay from East London on Foot. Hello. Hello, pleased to come and join you. (laughs) Thanks very much for coming in. Um, Can you tell us about um, who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm a qualified guide, so I lead uh, historic walks around parts of London. I specialise in radical history and women's history. So uh, I'm currently doing a walk called Radical Women of the East End, which ticks both boxes. (laughs) And I'm pleased to say it's been really popular at the moment. It, It features... Sylvia Pankhurst, which follows on from your Four Corners exhibition, but also Minnie Lansbury, who was an inspirational counsellor in, in Poplar, who tragically died after her experiences in Holloway Prison. Uh, and we have a lovely clock to commemorate her on Bow Road. So next time you're opposite Bow Road Tube Station, look across and you'll see a beautiful <laughs> clock and you'll know who it commemorates. Uh, what do you mean by radical history? How would you define that? Um, how would I define radical history? Uh, so it's not prime ministers and <laughs> uh, MPs so much as from the Chartists upwards, you know, people's history, uh, women and men who've really tried to make a difference to their communities. So another walk that we do is about the councillor Ada Salter in Bermondsey, who really was incredibly forward-looking. She managed to plant something like 10,000 trees in Bermondsey in the 20s and hugely improved the urban environment. And that was nearly 90 years ago. So there there are plenty of people like her who need to be celebrated and we need to rediscover these types of figures. Definitely. And so East London on foot, uh, can you talk a bit more about that? Um, One of the guiding associations I'm I'm involved in is East London on foot, which was set up a couple of years ago to try and promote walks in East London because it is such a fantastic heritage-filled area. Uh, You know, the buildings have been knocked about a bit by blitz (laughs) and slum redevelopment and most recently by all the new private sector blocks that are going up but um, there's plenty of really good East End history to celebrate so we have walks which for example look at uh, the famous midwife called call the midwife uh, and where <laughs> it actually took place to um, housing specialist walks like I do one around the Isle of Dogs to look at how housing provision in the Isle of Dogs has, has morphed from like 95% council housing to now it's all canary wharf skyscrapers and what's happening to our community is perhaps the focus of of East London on foot have a look at our website we've got a real diverse variety of walks 
So do you use the history of East London to kind of like think about what's happening in the present? Yeah, we try and be contemporary, we try and be relevant. Not all our walks are serious, thought-provoking, but, but a reasonable proportion of them are because people don't just want chunks of history, they want to see how what happened in the past might be relevant to the future and also perhaps to stand back and reflect a bit on what's happened to their communities, you know, and what what was good about the past, what was bad about the past and, you know, what influence people can have on the future development of their communities, whether it's housing or education or, or whatever. And do you think it's important that it's a walking tour? Like, does that? Yeah, I think yeah. I love doing walking tours. I've spent the a career doing desk-bound research, and it's just fantastic to actually get out there. Uh, and we always say to people, just look up, because if you look around um, the buildings just in an ordinary street, you notice so much. You can see the architectural changes. You can see the social changes. Um, so just getting out there on the street is a really good way to explore your neighbourhood. And I've lost count of the number of people who've been on our tours and said, you know, I've walked up and down this street so many times and I've never noticed that statue or that window or whatever. So be observant. I, I think it's a, it's a great motto. That's definitely me. <laughs> uh, do you, what's your favourite place in East London? Um, my favourite? Wow, that's a, that's a tricky one, actually. I do love Tregega Square, which is off Bow Road. It's it's a beautiful early 19th century square. And I think it really epitomises what's happened to the East End, because when it was built, it was development for the rich. Didn't work. People didn't move in there. Uh, and so it went downhill and became lots of houses of multiple occupation. There were factories. It was overcrowded. And then about 30, 40 years ago, people started moving back in, redeveloping it, and now they're back to being luxury houses. So wow. in 200 years, these, these terraces have been through the whole cycle of development and redevelopment. And it just shows how the East End is constantly changing. How did you get into it? How did you start doing walking tours? Um, well, I retired from Parliament. <laughs> and oh, as right. I said, I wanted to get out on the streets and do something completely different. So I trained... the three or four boroughs that offer training schemes for their boroughs and I trained in Islington. Tower Hamlets doesn't yet have its own scheme. Uh, and then I got in touch with other guides who guided around Tower Hamlets and started to develop walks there. So um, I really love it because you spend most of your time checking out individual stories but also visiting the buildings putting the walk together, so what works, what's not too long. You know, you don't want to walk 15 minutes between stops. There's a lot of practical on-the-ground type stuff. And then I've had to learn all sorts of new social media skills so I can <laughs> impress my friends. I actually know what Twitter is. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, good. It keeps, keeps me young, I think. Keeps me healthy and keeps me young. <laughs> And so you developed um, the East London's Radical Women Walk yourself two years, three, two years yeah. ago. And so why did that, how did that come about? Um, well, I was just very inspired by um, the centenary that was coming up uh, for some women over 30 got the vote in 1918 and also women were able to become MPs for the first time. Um, I still volunteer in Parliament and they had a big project, UK Vote 100, to 
commemorate that. So I thought, well, it would be a great time to perhaps highlight some of the women in East London who fought for the vote. And principally, we think of Sylvia Pankhurst, uh, and she was a great inspiration, but there were lots of other women too. Uh, she shouldn't, you know, she shouldn't eclipse everyone else. So I designed a walk starting with um, the match women's strike of the 1880s. Um, I managed to get in Tredegar Square because I had a story of an actress who was murdered by somebody who lived there, which enabled me to look at how a lot of women were sadly forced into prostitution uh, because of their precarious economic circumstances. Women really were at the bottom of the labour pile. Uh, and then I also looked at the Lansbury family, who were hugely significant in poplar politics at the time that Sylvia Pankhurst was operating in the 1900s and finished off with Minnie Lansbury, who was um, a Jewish lady who married into the family uh, and she was involved with the suffragette campaign and then during the First World War she got involved with helping war widows collect their money from the government and then she was elected to Poplar Council when she was very young, she was under 30, she couldn't even vote for Parliament, and yet she was, uh, you know, thought so well of in her community that she became a councillor. Wow. Um, as part of the Poplar Rates Rebellion, when the councillors refused to collect what they saw as an unfair system of rates, their 30 councillors went to prison, including Minnie, six women, 24 men, um, they won. In the end, the government let them out after six weeks and passed emergency legislation. But very, very sadly, conditions in Holloway Prison were so bad that it broke her health. And a couple of months later, she died of pneumonia and she was just 32. So, you know, a lot of women suffered. Not Suffragettes didn't die in Holloway as a direct result of hunger strikes, but the the, the actual prison conditions were appalling uh, and a lot of them, their health never recovered. So, you know, some people did pay the ultimate price to, to get women the, the economic and civil rights that we have today. So, yeah, and so my walk features all of that and um, then the next one is already sold out and I'm doing it again on the 23rd of February. You can find it on Eventbrite. Um, and I think it's really stimulating that so many people are interested in what happened nearly 100 years ago because I think we face many of the same issues in the East End today. A lot of poverty, maybe a lot more hidden than it was in the 1910s, 1920s, but there's huge amounts of poverty. But also, um, you know, there's, the, there's a lot of community activity as well to try and alleviate that, not least with food banks and so on. Uh, and we need to keep rediscovering what happened in the past to inspire us for the future. And so if people want to find out about your walk and find out about more about East London on Foot, where should they go? They can go to the East London on Foot website, which is simply eastlondononfoot.com, <laughs> uh, or also have a look on Eventbrite. Uh, I've got a number of walks there, and because I'm half Irish, it's quite easy to spell my name, which is double O-N-A-G-H, and there are not many unis on Eventbrite. <laughs> so that's how you should find out. And now you've got social media, your social media. Yep, and, and yes, I actually tweet as Crouch End Walks because I do live in Crouch End. <laughs> so it's a little bit obscure, but having built up a few hundred followers, it's it's 
difficult to ditch it. But um, there's also a Twitter account for East London on foot, and that's that. That is East London on foot. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much. Next, we're going to share some material from our last East Castaway listening lounge. And um, if you don't know, we run a sort of open mic night for audio at Set Space in Dalston. Um, and first up, we've got a clip called Gangs of Youths by Andrea Rangecroft. I went into the kebab shop, which is opposite the White Swan Green Pub. It's a green pub we call the White Swan. I actually got my kebab, and then from my kebab, I actually went over the road. And from when I went over the road, there were gangs of youths. Gangs of youths. Like, there was about seven of them. Gangs of youths standing there, waiting, to, area, waiting to attack. Like, there was about seven of them. I said, so I said, why are you doing this? What's the matter? What are you achieving? All of a sudden, what I witnessed was the place that I was getting my kebab from. They took the man's moped. Do you know the moped? They took the man's moped, rammed it into the kebab shop, and then after that, and then after that, they rammed it into William Hill. So as they rammed it into William Hill and ran back, over, ran back over the road, I said to them, I said, Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What's the matter with you? Like, Go on, man. There were gangs of youths. Gangs of youths. Gangs of youths. So I was thinking, oh, my good God, what are they going to do to me? What are they going to do to me? Do you know what I mean? And then they turned around and said, we're not achieving nothing. We're not going to hurt you. And they was like, we just want to hurt the government. Hurt the government. Hurt the government. I was quite glad that they didn't turn on me. And then after that, they was like, I know it sounds funny, but they was actually quite polite to me. I was quite surprised at the fact that they said, let the lady through. Let the lady through. Let her through. Don't hurt the lady. Let the lady through. Meaning me. They was ever so polite to me. And then they just let me through. And then I walked off the road and then went round the back to get my 47 back down to Surrey Keys. Uh, next, we're sharing another clip from the East Castaway Listening Lounge. It's a show made by Ian Tyson from Radio Thamesmead, who we featured on the show a couple of months ago, called Stages of Life. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely plays. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. You're listening to Ian Tyson, RTM Radio Tennisman, and today I'm joined by my mother, Mrs Mayfield Tyson. Why did you choose that particular song? It brings back memories of my childhood, my early childhood from the ages, between the ages of seven and eight, and Shirley Temple films were the rage. Everyone used to, the children loved it, and they, they created a doll in her image. I used to long to receive a Shirley, to be given a Shirley Temple doll every Christmas. I was hoping that I'd get a, a Shirley Temple doll, but it was outside the reach of my parents because it was very expensive. It looked like a caricature of Shirley Temple with the lovely curls, and even little girls used to try to get their hair curled like Shirley Temple. 
So that was my early, ex early experience of Shirley Temple. And so I loved the song. The song used to be belted out on the radio morning, noon, and night. And so we all learned it word for word. So you grew up in Guyana, yeah. British Guyana. What was your childhood like? It was carefree. Running around, I had friends. We used to play. We skip skipping. We used to have skipping. Played with dolls. We had dolls' houses, and we used to pretend to cook. We pretend to play house, and we were, and we used to sew dolls' clothes. What else? We did so many things that I can't. I can't really recall. It's just a long time ago because don't forget how old I am now. But all I know is that we really had fun as children. We used to go to the shop. We play. We used to play shop, and we would go to the grocer's on the corner. And we would ask him for a little bit of flour. And he would give us in little parcels and we'd go home and we'd play shop with real groceries. Did you have to pay for it? No, we didn't. We just go to Sue, the Chinese shop at the corner. And we tell him that Sue we playing at Dow's shop. And he would give us little bits and pieces of things that were like, that is true. <laughs> and he used to give us little bits and pieces or a bit of flour, a little bit of sugar in little parcels. And we'd go and we'd play with real, real things, the real groceries. Yes. But even, even so, my mother would say, send it to the shop and say, oh, go and buy a pound of flour or two pounds. And then you'd ask for a little baking powder. You didn't buy the baking powder. He would give you a little baking powder. Those were the days. Mm -hmm. I'll send these. A sleepy lagoon, a tropical moon, and two on an island. A sleepy lagoon and two hearts in tune in some lullaby land. The fireflies gleam, reflects in a stream, they sparkle and shimmer. A star from on high falls out of the sky and slowly that's, that was a Sleepy Lagoon sung so by Dinah Shore. I was about 16 years of age, and I guess I was kind of romantic. I've always been incredibly romantic. And they played it at the school dance, and it was the first dance that I went to. And I remember one of my teachers... Um, Randolph Fredericks, he asked me to dance and I felt very grown up dancing, waltzing with Mr. Fredericks. I think I was the envy of some of my classmates, <laughs> some of the other girls in the class, because he came and asked me to dance. And it always meant something to me. So whenever I hear Desert Island Disc, it takes me back. I always wish I could, they could play the whole thing so I could relive that moment, but they never do. So it's good to hear it again. I, I was 16 when I left, when I did my school certificate and left school. And then I went on to commercial school, which was different, a year. Because I couldn't go to work until I was 18. 
and I didn't go on to the higher school certificate. So I went to the commercial school where I did shorthand and typing for a year until I was 18. And then I joined the hospital staff and became a nurse. Followed in the footsteps of your mother. Fo- yes, following my mother's footsteps. Now we're going to have some live music. We're here in the studio with Henry Nielsen. Hello, Henry. Hiya. Happy to be here. <laughs> you got your mic. Yeah. Great. How's it going? And who are you? Yes. Tell us about you, please. Um, yeah, my name is Henry Nielsen. Um, I play music. I'm a singer-songwriter. I play sort of faux country music from London. Um, and, uh, yeah, happy to be here. Lovely. Do you want to do a song? Yes. This song is called The Way. You can take my word for it. Matter of mere months, I'll be a new Adonis hue from false stars and spare parts. I'm the fourth in a four-leaf clover, never dared to dream it's over, but the deluge in this cup. Is floating up. You are the way I wish I'd stay. Touch before your touch was a touch too. I'll be here for the here and now Completely sincere in my vow To break the wheel of our rolling ordeals So I can turn and say to you Where we're going
song is called In the Known. Watching TV from the top of the stairs In that room I hear laughter being shared Cover my mouth with the palm of my hand Try to breathe a soft as I can and then it's as dark as it's been walls as it seems it's like nothing you've seen light bursts through the curtains in your Outlines of shapes in the gloom, then you know that you're not alone, and then in your Before we hear Henry's last song, we've got an announcement. <laughs> um, we have our next date for uh, the next East Castaway Listening Lounge, um, which, as Katie was talking about earlier, it's an open mic night for audio. So what we do is we ask people to submit. Anyone can submit any kind of audio. So it can be like a documentary. It can be music. It can be sound design. It can be your first ever piece, or you can be like a super big professional um, and it's anything up to six minutes. We ask you to submit it, and then we have uh, we gather at Set Space Dawson, and it's like low lighting. There's cushions. We get candles. It's all very. Sometimes there's incense. It's <laughs> not very <a> cozy. <laughs> very cozy. It's not in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it would be great if you could come. We'll. We haven't uh, done like a um, an event for it yet, but we'll share everything on our Twitter which is at East Coast Show, and you can find us on Facebook at East Coast Show as well. Um, and we'll give you updates there. Mm-hmm. And if you want to submit anything, uh, you can email us at eastcastaway at gmail.com. Yes. If you have any questions about submissions, you can also just shoot them over there. Yes. And Henry, before we hear your last song, where can people find more of your music? Um, if they want to listen to anything, you can go to soundcloud.com slash henryolson. 
Um, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Henry Nielsen Music, and uh, also on Spotify, um, if anybody wants to uh, listen to the stuff they've heard. And on Apple Music. And on Apple Music, yes. All, all on all the, all the formats, <laughs> as many as they are. And just for people like me, how do you spell Nielsen? Um, N-I-E-L-S-E-N. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the name of your last song? Uh, this song is called All Year. Time for us all to say goodbye. Uh, East Cast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. And in the meantime, you can find everything on eastcastshow.com. 
Um, we've had a slight change of format in the new year. Uh, so next month you'll be hearing our new show, which is called Transmitter. And it's a curated selection of audio from Pearlwise, who you'll know from East Coast. <laughs> uh, and we'll, doing, we'll be doing um, like bi-monthly East Coast, bi-monthly Transmitter, so keep an ear out for that. Uh, so we'll be back again in the studio um, on Wednesday, March the 13th. And to play us out, here's another song from Henry. This is Last Year. listening to very loose web- so many thanks everybody and welcome to this celebration of a hundred years exactly since some women first voted in Britain for the first time